RNMD is a show about hospital relationships from the perspective of doctors and nurses. You're very smart, and we know that you would never come to a podcast for medical advice. So obviously, call your non-podcasting doctor and nurse team if you need any medical care. Oh, and we should also mention that we don't represent any hospital at all, ever. Okay, start the thing. everybody and welcome to RNMD, a show about doctors and nurses working together in this mad world of medicine. I'm Abby, your nurse host. I'm Laura, your doctor host. All right. And Laura, today we're going to talk about California's nursing ratios. I'm excited to learn. This is something I know nothing about. So we're going to we're going to deep dive this, I think. I mean, I kind of didn't know a lot about it. I only know that like the California is like the Mecca for nurses, right? Everybody loves working there. It's there's a lot of sunshine. They got like four to one in med surge. Everybody loves it. It's great. Um, So but I was like thinking, why do they have it? And we don't have it anywhere else. Like, yeah, it's it's been tried. And it's not the only union state. Like you would think that if it was the unions that were like really effective in getting safe staffing ratios, it would be in New York. And I feel like New York's got like the worst staffing in the country just about. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, New York has regularly like one to seven, one to eight on med surge. It's like a, it's a nightmare. So um, yeah, I had the same question. Like if, if, if it's because of the union, like, why isn't this other places, right? Um, so let's dive in. All right. How did California make this shit happen? Okay. They made it happen. Ready? Let's go down the little trail of history. Let's talk about it. In 1999, okay? Do you remember 1999? Do you want me to tell you how old I was in 1999? Are you going to get upset if I do? <sighs> yeah. Tell me. I was seven. I was like six for most of the year, to be fair. And then I turned seven. Cool. So I was your babysitter. <laughs> okay. Um, cool, cool, cool. Anyway, moving on. For those of us that remember 1999, I fucking for those, remember the... <laughs> for those the, of you that partied like it was 1999. Y2K. I remember it. Okay. Anyway. So I'm quoting directly from the National Nurses United website. Um, they're directly involved in some of this. So I just want to give them a shout out and we'll put the references in the show notes. After 10 years of lobbying, the RNs of California Nurses Association, who, you know, later merged with National Nurse United in 2004, which, you know, you see everywhere on the West Coast now, they successfully sponsored and lobbied the California legislature to pass um, and sign AB 394. This was a historic bill that made minimum specific numerical staffing ratios in California. Um, But this victory did not just happen overnight. In fact, the CNA members had attempted on multiple occasions for almost a decade to pass safe staffing ratios in the state. 
The final winning effort followed an extensive grassroots campaign by RNs with broad support from patients and general public that included thousands of letters, calls, and a massive rally on the steps of the Capitol in Sacramento on the day of the final vote. After the nurses essentially did this extensive grassroots campaign, they called their friends, they called their family, they got their kids out there, if they had their dogs, they went down to Sacramento, they were like, hey, what's up? We want staffing, right? And that is where it actually came from. Now, of course, the, the nursing unions, they were integral in organizing, mobilizing people. But the reason why it actually was successful is because the people were really engaged, right? And I think especially when we're talking about, you know, 1999, it's a little bit different than now, right? I I have a feeling that the nurses had been kind of beaten down for so long that nobody really took this campaign very seriously. They didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have a big strategy. They just showed up to shit. And look what happened. It worked. This- And this was like before social media. Like, I wonder, this is a little bit of a tangent, but like Mm -hmm. to what extent has social media made this easier or harder? Like these nurses were literally like call. This is before text messages. Like they were calling each other and knocking on doors and getting out and like making these connections, you know? Exactly. Yeah. So obviously hospital executives and the industry in general, including the California Hospital Association, lobbied extensively to defeat this law. Once passed, um, the actual numbers were under discussion through the regulatory process. And then again, they argued for ridiculously high ratios. Um, RNs, again, successfully advocated for safe numbers at a minimum with additional staffing depending on acuity. Oh, my God. Like, somebody make a movie about them, please. Subsequently, the industry sought to undermine ratios at every turn. They filed lawsuits. They blocked enforcement of the ratios at all times. They encouraged averaging, which is just like, we're not going to get into it here, but, like, it doesn't work because then you're not accounting for how sick the patients on your unit are. Um, They encourage hospital managers to evade the letter and the spirit of the law. Um... And they tried to overturn AB 394. Um, so who was, who was this opposing this? This is the hospitals. So it's, it's actually the lobbying organizations for the hospital system. So we're talking about like the American Hospital Association, for example, is like one of the big players in this. Um, and you can actually see when we will get down to like more of the legislation, like you can actually see some of these organizations that they tend to partner with each other on things like this. Um, so the AHA was opposing all of this the entire time, even after it was already passed. Exactly. Yeah. So hospital executives, the hospital industry, including the California Hospital Association, they lobbied extensively to defeat the law. Once passed, um, the actual numbers were under discussion through the regulatory process. And then it took them essentially five years to implement it because they filed lawsuits they were blocking it um they were running out the clock basically to over they were trying to overturn it which never came to fruition 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 
fruition, I think. Beautician. We're going to say fruition. I mispronounced perseverance, perseverance, perseverance. I don't fucking know. So we're just not going to pronounce things correctly on this podcast. It's like where a peach gets their hair done. Fruition. Okay. (laughs) That was bad, but I liked it. (laughs) You saw where I was going with it. Okay. It was terrible. (laughs) I liked it a lot. Okay. Um, Okay. So the staffing ratios took effect in California in acute care hospitals January 1st, 2004. And what do you think happened, Laura, when when they did that? They said, we're finally doing it after five years. What do you think happened? Uh, I think the hospitals rioted and burned down and there was a disaster and California floated off into the sea. They collapsed. I was seven. I was seven. So I missed a lot of this. <laughs> Actually, no, I was 12 at this point. Sorry. Sorry. I was 12. Oh, I was not okay. following the news. Okay. I wasn't that. Okay. Uh, seven's different than 12. Okay. In 2004. Oh, we're up to 2004, oh. right? Oh, <laughs> fuck. Okay. All right. Sorry. I graduated high school in 2005. Okay. Anyway, all right. <laughs> okay, that's what. So that's what exactly what you're describing. That's what they said was going to happen. If we pay these nurses, the hospital system will collapse. We can't afford them. Mm-hmm. There, we're gonna. Uh, the whole place will collapse, and the patients will not have access to care. They made it about the patients, right? Obviously, because which they is can't- which is why since 2004, California has not had any healthcare whatsoever. Right. The end. Podcast over. Podcast over. They don't have hospitals there anymore, right? Nope. Hospitals in California are a myth. <laughs> you heard it here first. I'm going to start a conspiracy theory. I'm really excited about Can this. we turn this into a conspiracy podcast? It kind of already yes. is. But like the conspiracies are true. So can we like sprinkle in like some Mothman just for fun? Yeah, bonus That's episodes. not a conspiracy. That's real. But anyway, okay. <laughs> Patreon. Check us out on Patreon. Our soon to become Patreon. We don't have it yet. All right. Okay. 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 So did California float off into the sea with no health care? Nope. Almost nothing no. happened. Almost nothing <laughs> happened. It was like, it just sort of was like a blip. Um, the, the hospitals paid out more. Um, the nurses reported feeling like more satisfaction. The patients were happier, but almost nothing else happened. There were no hospitals that were reported bankruptcy because of staffing ratios. And I think that's a really important argument. Um, And, you know, honestly, they should have just like as a if I had been on their team, I would have been like, we got to fake bankrupt at least one of these places just to like make a point. Right. But like (laughs) they're not even good at their conspiracies. Like, come on, we could have done this way better. I could have organized this shit way better for them. It's fine. (laughs) Okay. Um, so and, anyway, uh, also just if anybody, any hospital administrators are listening to this, if you pay us well enough, we will turn <laughs> to the other side and help you fake bankruptcy. No, Make us an won't. offer. No, we won't. R and MD podcast at gmail.com. Make me an offer. I have loans. <laughs> no, we won't. That's fake. Okay. Anyway. All right. So conspiracies. Th- conspiracy. That's a conspiracy. Okay. The hospitals did not close in mass um, as a report. As a result of needing to comply with safe staffing laws, patients were not turned away from emergency rooms specifically. And I think that's really important to know, especially when we're talking about emergency departments. Now, all of a sudden, because they have enough nurses to take care of them, they can actually hold people in the ED. 
Imagine. Or not even hold people in the ER. It's like we don't have to hold people in the ER and we can actually see emergency patients in the ER instead of boarding them because we're staffing the the floors appropriately. Yeah. 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 I think it was. Yeah. I think it was both, to be honest with you. It was like even if we have to hold people, we have this nurse can have like three patients or whatever versus six. You know what I mean? Right. Right. So people aren't dying from not having nurses and having, you know, a heart attack in the waiting room because there weren't any staff beds. Exactly. And like you're saying, then they could actually admit them upstairs as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So what happened? The ratios, they took effect. And then all of a sudden people flocked and by people, I mean, nurses flocked to California. It became a much more rewarding profession. Again, RNs within the state returned to the bedside people who had been driven away from the bedside. They came back because they actually wanted to care for patients just in a safe and rewarding way. Um, And across the country, people just appreciated like, hey, I can take care of my patients and not feel like I'm actually harming them. So they did that. Nurse recruitment and retention has improved. So they have been able to retain um, and recruit more nurses since that time. And that actually saves the hospital from expense and clinical disruption and rapid turnover amongst their nursing staff. And more importantly, there's a bunch of research, which we're about to get into, which proves that staffing ratios have improved safety of the patients and actually have saved lives. Okay, so to the research? To the research. To the research. Let's go. To the research. <laughs> I feel like that's a thing. Let's go to the research. I feel like Bill <laughs> Nye, except not nearly as cool. Bill, if you ever want to be on the podcast, let us know. We'll talk about whatever you want. He's way too cool for us. He, he will never. What if someone said this to him and we got Bill Nye on though? Like that would like change my life. I would just stop what I was doing. All right. So to the research. I'll marry, I'll marry him. Are we in the research department now? Okay. I think we are. So for those of you who don't know within impact, uh, I'm usually the researcher along with our dear friend, Anna from feminist since Lawrence. Uh, and Abby usually ignores all of my articles and does not read them. So we're having a big role reversal today where Abby is, uh, reading articles that I have not read. Yeah. It's pretty weird. Um, she, she does not look excited right now. She looks very unhappy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to try to summarize this. Here's the thing about having ADHD. These people, they go on and on and on and they say stuff that is a given. And then I, I'm just like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about or why. And I just click yeah. out. Uh, I'm going to teach you my secrets to reading research papers. And the, the secret is you don't read most of the paper. I need we'll that. that. Okay. <laughs> I'll I teach you later. That. I'm like, we'll, this is we'll a do lot a whole, of words. We'll do a, we'll do a <laughs> whole episode on ADHD paper reading. And the <laughs> trick is abstract conclusion <laughs> that's not true but but kind of that's sort <laughs> of what true. i'm gonna i'm gonna give you a heads up that's what i copied and pasted into this section right now okay all right okay <laughs> so that aside abby teach me some research the first article we're talking about is by aiken is that right like linda Lin- aiken linda aiken she's a phd rn of the center of health outcomes and policy for the university of pennsylvania school of nursing so she did a huge project which i gotta give her listen i don't love research i don't love uh theory blah 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 but I got to give her a lot of credit because this thing is actually really interesting and amazing. So link below, check it out. Um, she, okay. She did all of this research 2010. It was the most comprehensive study done, um, on the California RN staffing ratios law. Um, 
And she had a lot of really interesting conclusions. So basically, she concluded that nursing ratios are the single most effective nursing policy to protect patients and keep experienced RNs at the bedside. She found that on average, California nurses are likely to care for two fewer patients for like a gen surge unit than Pennsylvania or New Jersey. Okay. And that, that means, sorry, go per ahead. Shift. Per shift. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's a lot, right? Yeah. And you know, that's what's hard to translate to like if someone's not working in the hospital, they're like, oh, well, two patients. Like, what does that mean? It means a lot. Like, it actually yeah. means a lot. I mean, you might miss a change in a patient condition um, mm-hmm. because your workload is just, it's so overwhelming, right? I mean, let's let's take actually a second to put this in terms for any, like, patients, any non-healthcare people who might listen to this. Like, if you have, if you're a nurse, if you're a med surge nurse and you have 10 patients in a 12-hour shift, how much time do you actually spend in the room taking care of that patient? Less than 20 minutes, less than 20 minutes. So like, so, you know, your hospital bill is going to be the same if your nurse has one to six or if your nurse has one to 12 and you're going to get half as much care. Right. So, and, and you're at, you're at risk, especially when mm -hmm. we're talking about like a surgical patient coming back, post-op care, something like that. Your nurse needs to be in the room, needs to be assessing you, needs to be looking at the monitors. But if they're rushing and they're looking at somebody else, I mean, honestly, I've had times where I was on a general med surge floor and let's say my ratio is regular, like one to seven, and then I get an admission, right? That was kind of my norm. And the person who was the lowest acuity, I might have saw that person three times in, in 12 hours. I go in, introduce myself, check them out. I go in in the middle of the night, check on them. Are they breathing? Literally. And I go in at the end of the shift just to make sure they're still alive. And that's the end of it. The person who is about to be discharged, they basically don't see me. And then they get this giant bill, right? Mm-hmm. What are we charging for, them yeah, for? Yeah, for hospital care. And like... This is a little bit of a tangent, so I'm sorry for this, but like we're talking about this today in terms of the California nursing staffing ratios. But like mm-hmm. staffing is a problem for everybody in the hospital, hospital, every single care provider of any level in the hospital is affected by this. Like one of my classmates from residency texted me a couple months ago that she saw 35 patients in a 10 hour shift wow. as an emergency doctor. And I'm just like, so let's if we assume if we assume she spent all of her time with those patients, didn't do any charting and just did like patient care and ordering those patients got what, like max 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And that's, and like, that's, you know, if she does several hours of charting at home, so like that patient's going to get several thousand dollar bill from the emergency room for getting five to 15 minutes with their doctor. Exactly. Like this, these staffing, like, (laughs) you know, we're mad about this, not because we, want to be lazy like this isn't something where I want to sit on my ass and like not see any patients I want to see patients that's why you know I'm in this job but like I want to be able to do a job a good job with my patients and spend enough time to figure out what's going on with you and like that's what you're talking about with staffing is like changes in patient condition you need to see the patient to know Mm -hmm. if their conditions changed right right so if you're a patient and you think staffing doesn't matter it does like do you want me to to spend time with you you're going to get billed to to see me as a doctor don't you want me to actually see you right exactly and 
it drives a wedge between healthcare providers and the patient too, because they go home and they say, well, I had one night stay in a hospital and I don't feel like anybody even looked at me or talked to me the whole time I was there. And I got a $150,000 bill. Right. So, and they assume that we're getting that money, right. Where Mm -hmm. meanwhile, you got a quarter million dollars worth of debt. I got a bunch of debt. You know, we're over here just like, I don't want to say living paycheck to paycheck, but not not thriving either in the in <laughs> yeah. the way that you would think with that kind of a bill for one patient, especially when we're talking about somebody, a doctor has 35 patients and a nurse on a med surge unit has eight patients and they're getting these hundreds of thousands mm-hmm. of dollar bills and we're making what we're making. I, I just think that's why we need to partner with the public. Yeah, and I think even beyond like, you know, us not making money, which I mean, is a different conversation. I think for nurses, it's definitely true that, and for most professions, this gets into like weird territory about whether physicians get paid enough because primary care physicians don't. But anyway, like without discussing the money aspect of it, like this isn't satisfying for people who went into this career. Like no one goes into medicine to like get that bag. Like no one goes into this because this is like a quick, like, Easy way to make money. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Like we go into this because like we think we're going to help people. We think we're going to have these relationships. We think we're going to provide care. Like Mm -hmm. if I wanted to make money, I would have been a venture capitalist. I would have been a hospital administrator. Right. And I would have been working for five years by now instead of training for the past eight, you know? Exactly. But it's not just the money. It's really not the money at all. It is the, the fact that I can't do my job in a, and to the level that I want to do my job because of the way I'm staffed. Yeah. And I think that goes back to last episode where we're talking about moral injury, where like, I'm actually not even asking for a raise. I'm asking for staffing so that I can have more time with my patient. Like, and how is that controversial? Right. Well, they've made it controversial because they have all this lobbying money and, um, you know, infrastructure to organize. So Linda Aiken study also found that if New Jersey and Pennsylvania were to implement the same ratios, one to five in like a med surge unit, for example, that they would have like New Jersey would have 14% fewer deaths. Pennsylvania would have 11% if they matched the same ratios. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. That's a really big number. Oh, this is interesting. Just skimming through. Uh, nurses report decreased use of unlicensed personnel, uh, such as housekeeping and unit clerks. Of course. Yeah, of course. I'm assuming they actually need less assistance, right? Like if I have four med surge patients, like I might not need a tech. Like I might actually be able to help my patient go to the bathroom by themselves, you know? One important thing to note is that Dr. Aiken said that her research has shown that staffing did change substantially in California hospitals, even in safety net hospitals, um, which have been very difficult to get change on hospital nurse staffing. But almost 17 years later, California still has the best nursing staffed hospitals in the country. Um, Meanwhile, the state has seen deeper declines in mortality and improvements in other indicators than any other state, which I thought was pretty cool. So basically this worked. Like It worked. Putting these ratios has not bankrupted hospitals. They've stayed open. The ratios have 
persisted, right? Like that's what that means is they've kept these general, or if not these exact ratios, they've kept better ratios in the rest of the country and they've had better outcomes because of it is the, is the bottom so line. So they've kept the ratios that were, and, and, you know, I can actually go through them quickly. Um, they've kept the recommended ratios that are now, you know, mandated by the state during COVID it's been a problem for them because they have declared a state of emergency. They don't have to follow the guidelines, et cetera. Um, but in general, it is better for them. Um, hold on. Let me go through the actual the numbers. So California are into patient safe staffing ratios. Operating room or a trauma patient in the ER is one to one. Um, ICU critical care, uh, neonate ICU, uh, post-op recovery, LND, ICU patient in the ER is going to be one to two. Step down, one to three. Antipartum, postpartum, couplets, pediatric, emergency room, uh, tele patients, other specialty care is one to four. Med surge, one to five. Postpartum woman uh, and psych is going to be one to six. I mean, I don't know what everybody else is saying, but that is not what's happening where we are right now. Like, yeah, I saw a tweet the other day of, uh, like a Manhattan ER was like 14 yeah. to one or something like just, oof. yeah. Yeah. I mean, I regularly had, you know, one to seven with an admission, which made eight. And in the, that was on med surge telly, I had one to six and ICU. I had one to four three on a good day, one to four, right as I was leaving. And we didn't even have COVID at that time. It was like one of those, you know, where COVID was actually okay for a minute and they still were using that excuse. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that this, um, this improves patient outcomes and a couple other things mm -hmm. does, what else is this impacting? It's also helped nurses lowering occupational injury and illness of nurses by 30%. 30% mm -hmm. of illness and injury. So, so when you're appropriately staffed and you're not doing uh, like repositioning and turns by yourself, like when you actually have enough people to, to have more than one hand on hand on deck at all times, you don't get hurt as much. Or when you're not inappropriately staffed, you don't get assaulted as it, much. Like weird. I'm shocked. Isn't that amazing? I just feel like we don't even have to say some of this. Like, of course, of course that's true. Yeah. Like, of course. And this is like... <laughs> Like shout out to Linda. We love you, Dr. Dr. Linda, Dr. Aiken. I'm sorry. I'm being rude, but like, we love you and we love research, but like the, and this was, I think this is, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago now, right. but like in the past, I was reading a statistic earlier today that like in the past couple of years, there has been like at least one paper on burnout published every single day. And there's been tons of research, research on staffing published every single day. Like this is one of those things that we have at this point studied into the absolute dirt. Right. Like we have like, we're beating a dead horse, right. you know, we have so much literature on this. Where was I going with this point? Um, Just like, can't we do something now about it? Like we know that this is happening, but yet it's also stuff that intuitively we should know, right? Like, you know, treating your workers like shit, staffing your workers poorly so they don't have time to do a good job. Like, you know, setting up environments where your workers are going to get abused because they're not, you know, appropriately staffed to have, a, you know, a safety system with workplace violence or, 
you don't have time to actually take care of your patients is going to make your workers burn out and leave and do a worse job. And it's going to cause bad patient outcomes. Like these are things that are like so basic that I can't believe we have to prove them to administrators in order to make change. But you know, I personally, I don't think that we do. I think that everybody knows it, including them. And you know how you can test that? Look at a VIP unit. I don't ever see a VIP unit with one to eight nursing ratios, right? <laughs> they know it. I love that. I love that so much. I've literally never thought about that. And I'm like, oh yeah, all right. Fair they enough. know it. The VIPs are fucking one to one, one to yeah, two. Like. They know it. They can't admit it because it will take away from their salary and their bonuses. And like, I, and that's the thing is like, so Harrison mentioned it of that, you know, we have so much research on shit like this. We have so much research on the fact that basically it boils down to if you treat your workers badly, you have worse patient outcomes and you have worse staff outcomes. We have tons of research on right. that. And it's it's like a really easy thing for us to get frustrated with. If like we keep, and you know, we've talked about this with medical racism. We've talked about this with like sexism and like transphobia. Like we have a lot of literature that these things are problems. And we have a lot less literature on how do we fix them, exactly. you know, like there's not a lot of, of like peer reviewed papers that have said, this is an effective way to reduce implicit bias or to actually make staffing happen. You know, California is the case study of this actually worked. We actually got staffing passed and that's the only one we've really got. Right. So we, but at the same time, we can't say that this research into what, you know, this research that's giving us these numbers of, look, this actually does work. This actually improves patient outcomes. This actually saves money or it doesn't cost more or it doesn't bankrupt the hospitals. That's important. And I'm so glad that we have such a robust body of evidence because you can't refute it at this point. No one can say that they, you know, they just don't think that's real. Like, no, we have thousands of papers on this. But I also think that for those, you know, if there are students out there, if they're, the next step is, what do we do about it? You know, we have, we have the statement of need at this point. We have the problem described. We've got to start talking about how are we going to fix this? Let's start talking about why is this happening? Why, when we have this wealth of knowledge, why do we keep having to fight for ratios? You don't see that when we're talking about uh, a pilot, you know, a pilot has mandated hours that they have to sleep in between shifts and things like that. You don't see that same fight, right? And I want to see why, whose interest is it for us to be working ourselves to death and for our patients to be suffering and for the healthcare system to basically collapse, what, to pay some CEOs? I want to know why that is. Do a research paper on that and tag us on it. And and I mean, be a little bit careful because don't sabotage your career early on. Uh, we're not we're not advocating for that. But I, I think, kind of I am. Think though. Like, <laughs> all right, okay. So sabotage your career and then come work for our nonprofit. Um, we will support you if we ever have money. <laughs> if, if we, we have, have money. If we have money. But anyway, we will. the question is, and I think we're at a point with a lot of these issues where we do need to stop you know, a lot of these papers will conclude with this adds to the robust body of evidence establishing that this is a problem. We don't need to add to the robust body of evidence. Like we need new things. We need, I, you know, I did this project looking at how I'm actually going to make a difference in this problem that we've known about for the past 30 years. Like that's where we're at. And there's, that's hard. Like that's something that we're dealing with, with impact of like, I do think education and I do think awareness is super important. And like, you aren't going to address a problem until you know, it's an issue. So I think 
from an educational perspective, I think these research papers are huge and, you know, that's why we talk about them, right? Like we want people who aren't big, big nerds who read papers all day, every day, like we do. Like you do. Because we have a problem. Like okay, you do. Fair. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, fair. I'm over it. I'll um, be honest with you. But it, yeah. All Go right. Ahead. Fair enough. Yeah. Abby doesn't, Abby ignores like 80% of my texts because I'm like, oh, read this paper. And she's like, no. But anyway, so like we do think that like getting that education to people out is really important. And I'm going to quote these papers for the rest of my life because I am the big, big nerd. But at the same time, like this... Proving there's a problem is not enough. You know, we need to start talking about and looking at peer-reviewed ways or developing ways that we will then peer review of actually making changes. Yeah, you know? I mean... And, and I think this is... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I just think, and, you know, I think I'm just... I'm a little over it. I'll be honest with you. I, I get what you're trying to say. It is important, right? I, I'm not saying th- that research isn't important and, uh, you know, theory isn't important, et cetera. But research for research sake and theory for theory's sake is not helping anybody. Meanwhile, day to day, our patients are suffering. M- meanwhile, day to day, people are suffering. Uh, healthcare workers are suffering. I yeah. I can't fucking look at another. This is one of the problems why I can't read this shit anymore because I'm so frustrated because I- I'm not trying to be rude. I-, I know a lot of people, they take their uh, research, they have to do it, right? They have to do it to kind of climb the yeah. ladder in academia. I get it. But at the same yeah. time, Pu- publish or perish. Right. At the same time, why are they forcing you to do that? And and why can't you step outside that box and take step two instead of step one a thousand times over like everybody mm-hmm. else? These are questions that I really want answered because it's not serving anyone except for the people at the top making money. And and I'm, I'm over yeah. it. I don't want to read any more papers about why this is bad for our patients. I don't need to read about it. I can see it with my eyeballs and so can everybody mm-hmm. else. It, we, now, now it's time for it- action. And I think that's definitely true. I mean, my only like rebuttal to that, as much as it, it's not really a rebuttal, um, is I've been reading this book called Doing Good Better. It's by William McCaskill. Uh, it's very good. A friend recommended it to me like five years ago. But like one of the things that it talks about is um, a lot of these like charity initiatives that we donate to or like these nonprofits that we you know devote our time and energy to they have these ideas about like the ways we're going to make change and like, we're going to, we're going to fix things by doing this. And they, you know, with charity navigator and stuff like that, you'll have like a charity report of how much of their money goes to their initiatives and how much of the, you know, what percentage goes to the CEO versus what percentage goes to their, their tasks. But something that's like relatively new. And this is sort of like the point of the book is his, I think his company basically does this is you also have to look at what good is that, company or that organization actually doing. And that's, I think this, the parallel I'm drawing here is that like, it's the same thing with transforming healthcare. If we can't just be like, Oh, we're going to make this change Mm -hmm. and it's inherently going to fix healthcare. You know, that's sort of what the EMR was proposed to do. Like the EMR was going to transform patient care. It was going to make everything safer. And instead like there, there are some ways, there are some ways I'm not going to like get into literature on this now because it's very boring, but like, there are some ways that EMRs improve patient safety and patient communication, but like there are also a lot of ways that it just worsens provider burnout sure. or it, you know, creates alarm fatigue. Like this is one of those initiatives that we put in place without actually measuring whether or not it's going to be effective. That's actually made a lot of things a lot worse. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, I guess that's what I'm saying is like, if you want to do research, fucking fantastic. I love that. I don't really want to. So you please do it. If you add something you're interested in, 
But I agree with Abby. The step one, we're done with that. We've got we've got the statement of need. I need you to be looking at how are we going to fix this? Like I have a I have an idea. Well, let's impose this in one. You know, let's do a like a double blinded match. You know, cohort analysis. Figure out which intervention actually generates these results, and let's start actually finding solutions. We don't need more statements of need. We need solutions and proof that they work. Right. So okay. So in conclusion, I guess it's like you can ask the question why was California successful, right? And I think a lot of people will point to a union and say a union is why. And they're not totally wrong. Um, Yeah, I think the unions facilitated this. They had the uh, infrastructure to organize and phone banks and, you know, rallies and this kind of stuff. But the union could have done all that stuff. And if nobody shows up to it, that's the end of it. Nobody, I think, here's my takeaway. I just want to be really clear about this. This is my theme for today, okay? (laughs) The union can do whatever it wants. The union can say whatever it wants. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If I, as a union organizer, go to the head, to the CNO of the hospital that I'm working for, and I say, I think night shift needs a $5 raise because they're working on night shift and they don't have a shift diff, right? He's going to look at me and be like, I don't give a fuck what you think. He cares what the nurses think. So if the nurses start showing up and they start saying, I want $5 more, if they start going to rallies, if they start talking and and they're disgruntled and they show up in his office or her office and they start writing petitions, that's when you see stuff done, right? The union is the vehicle. The union is a great thing, but it is the vehicle. The people are the power. And I think we really need to focus more on the people aspect of it than the union aspect. Yeah. And like, I mean, we're, I think we're pro union. Like I think that's not something that's controversial, but I think the idea that the union is not sufficient to fix your problems for you without any action of your own is just, you know, it's just untrue. Like the reason California was successful, like, you know, New York is a union state. Like, I don't actually know what other states are nursing union states, but like a couple others I know. But like the only union state that was successful in getting these ratios is California. And California was successful because it had people going door to door and knocking and getting this organization of not just healthcare workers and not just nurses and not just union members, but getting patients and getting these people involved And that's why they were successful. And I think that's like a, that's an important thing. If you can't like, I mean, we, like you said, we love unions. If you want to unionize your hospital, we are all for that. Like, I think that's great. But like, it's, I think it's, you you can't just unionize and be like, cool, we're done. Like it's, you have to participate. Yeah. And I think that's something to, and I think it's also, I think it's really interesting thinking about all this happening in 1999 before like the internet and before social media and before podcasts. I guess NPR was a thing in 1999, but, um, you know, (laughs) but, you know, I think it's, it's interesting because I think we have a lot of potential now for direct action and for community organizing and a lot of potential for getting people really involved, but you have to get involved. Like if this is something that like, okay, you're, you're here now, you're learning about these ratios and you're learning about the literature that that shows that this is beneficial Mm -hmm. And you want this, like you, you have to get involved. You can't expect someone to hand this to you. And I think that's sort of, that's one of the, we're not here to like just pimp impact, but we kind of are. Um, that's like one of the things we want to do is like actually get people involved. So it's not on just union administrators to know what you need. It's on you to tell 
everybody what you need and and work to get it. Yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. And when you're talking about um like union states, for example. I mean, you alluded New York is a union state. By and large, our our nurses are union here, right? Massachusetts, that's another one. They're very big union, right? And yet their ratio legislation failed. Ours did as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, D.C. had some. It failed. I mean, there was like 14 states after California that came out and they said that we want to do this too, but they did not have that robust grassroots. And, you know, I am speculating maybe because it was the first time this had been introduced, people really came out and then possibly Mm -hmm. it was like, well, yeah, they did it in California. So maybe people were less, they kind of thought it was in the bag. I'm not sure. But the fact is that it, it was even, I remember when they were doing it for Massachusetts and I felt that way. I felt like, well, why wouldn't they? It's a blue state, super liberal Boston. They love unions. Yeah, it's a shoe in And then it was yeah. it was not voted in. And I was reading like yeah. their news sites and on their social media. And it was like people in their own community saying, well, these nurses are just lazy. They don't want to take care of patients. They just want mm-hmm. their money and they want to go home. That's not true. And that's where you need the nurses talking just like we're talking saying I don't give a shit about my money most nurses there was a a study it was part of this study that said that actually the nurses were willing to take a pay decrease if they just had better ratios I think most nurses when you talk to them they'll say that their number one thing is not salary it's ratios and that directly impacts the patient so I think it's something we can all get behind and it's interesting like these sort of like public slander campaigns Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's, we've got like this weird culture and I know nurses are still like the most trusted profession. I think people hate doctors, which are like, I get it honestly, but like we've, (laughs) sorry. Uh, But like, we've got like these weird things where like the American hospital association, the American medical association, like the insurance lobbying, like companies, organizations, they have so much money and they have so much political power. You know, they can run ads about, uh, I saw, an ad about why drug price negotiating was a bad thing. <laughs> like just like stuff where I'm like, what? I literally don't understand. What, like, I don't know who's paying for this. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out who was paying for this and I couldn't do it, but I got to get, you know, these yeah. org- <laughs> Oh, <laughs> but like these organizations have a lot of power and have a lot of money and like any individual union, even, I mean, I guess unions probably have more money than most, but like, like it's really hard to come up against these, coalitions of professional organizations and hospitals and insurance companies that have a lot of money in this game. Like that's really hard to come up against. Yeah. But like at the same time, like we have the fucking moral high ground. Exactly. Like we're, you know, as healthcare workers, we're advocating for, I want to work in a system where I can do my job and take care of my patients and not want to fucking kill myself at the end of the day. So I can come back and do this again tomorrow. Like, right this isn't about money. Like all of us, I'm sure we've said this before. We'll keep saying it. Like all of us, if you're in healthcare, you are smart enough. You could have been a banker or a venture capitalist or like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like I would have went into like electricians make pretty good money. Like there are like a lot of other careers where you can make a lot of money a lot faster with a better schedule. Way less hassle. Like I would have went into like coding or something, something where I could work from home, like and make 300 K a year. Like, 
Yeah, that's the thing is like we're this is like my favorite, my favorite thing because people are like doctors are in it for the money. I'm like doctors are smart enough. I promise if we were in it for the money, we would have made money by now. And we have not. We have no money. I am very poor right now. (laughs) But um, (laughs) yeah, debt. (laughs) Um, So I think that's the thing is like, you know, we're going up against these people with a ton of money and a ton of power, but we have the high ground. And I think getting that message to people and having these conversations with patients and having these conversations with your community members about like, hey, like, you know that patients die at a 14% higher rate in states with worse ratios than they do in California. Like, is that something that you're like, do you want a 14% higher risk of death just because you think nurses are greedy? Like, is that really like what you, you're going to hang your hat on yeah, that? Like, is that what you believe? You're going to take that gamble? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know. We need, we have the moral high ground. We even have the finance, like the financial high ground because like cool hospitals didn't go bankrupt, you know, like this actually saves money. If we're going to reduce staff turnover and reduce malpractice and reduce like payouts to patients for, Oh, sorry, there was a medication error because your nurse was 12 to one. Well, I mean, and, and I think the fun (laughs) and by fun, I mean like the part (laughs) where I will fuck them up. Yeah. (laughs) No, (laughs) the fun part about that is, that with my charisma yeah where I fuck them up with my charisma is like <laughs> if I can ever debate these people which I hope with impact I will get the opportunity <laughs> one day to do I mean one of the things that I hope that someday I can um bring to the attention of these people right is like y- we have to also learn how to talk to these people in their own language right they don't talk mm-hmm always on a moral high ground we are right of course we're right and the and with the public we will win that amongst ourselves we will win that but when we are in meetings with them I think we also need to take a step back and stop you know when I was bargaining uh with some of the league which is you know all the major hospital systems in New York City we had a lot of nurses COVID nurses who spoke and it was a lot of the same stuff and it's stuff that I think is really important to listen to right uh moral injury ratios staffing problems all the same stuff but at the end of the day that's not what the language that they speak we have to also mm-hmm. as professionals learn how to speak their language this is profitable at the end of the day for them long term it actually is because they can retain staff they can have better patient outcomes they don't have readmission problems through you know medicare medicaid they we mm-hmm. can make that case that it's actually better for everyone to do and i think we really need to start kind of approaching it as less of like altruistic and like start getting in on like the the business part of it business yeah right mm-hmm. because it's yeah, true I hate, that. I hate that but you're right yeah. i hate it too i don't want to do that i don't want to i want to go smack them <laughs> with my my high horse but anyway. i want to do that too we'll do both we'll just do both <laughs> we can do both it's fine yeah, yeah. we can do we're both. right in both ways all right, all right we gotta go you're correct in all things i'm literally sitting on a trash can because my chair from Amazon has not been delivered yet. And I got a new desk and I wanted to try it out and be super snazzy <laughs> today, but I'm, should we, my ass is like getting numb. Should we, should we tell them that we recorded this twice? We recorded it twice. 
I'll try to use clips from both. It's going to turn into it. The first one was editing. No, editing don't. The first, the first one was terrible. Please just post this one. The first one was really bad, but we were so committed to this cause that we recorded it a second time. It wasn't that bad. If I had edited it, it was pretty bad. If, if I, had, mm. I could have edited it. You don't know my, e- it would have taken you. It would have taken you six hours to edit and you would have gotten burnt out and not want to do it. Okay. Do the closer. Uh, thank you, every thank you everybody for listening to RNMD. If you could please like and subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, topics, suggestions, please email us at rnmdpodcast at gmail.com. Um, please share if you would like to. Please, uh, Laura had a pretty good idea. Okay, <laughs> we were saying that if you could give us a five star review because. The last five-star review with a, with an actual comment that I got was in July, and it was Laura who sent it. Okay, <laughs> so I wasn't I wasn't I wasn't the co-host then. We had just met. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, and I asked you to do it. So if <laughs> you put a five-star review and then make some kind of like funny joke, these bitches sound like chaotic llamas on meth. Five stars. <laughs> Abby, Abby really likes comments about the register of her voice. She loves that. I love it. <laughs> if you can deduce, actually, no, it's very obvious. If you make fun of our accents and correctly identify the states that we are from, uh, definite bonus points. I feel like yours is pretty obvious. No, it's not. Your accent is so much worse. Than oh that. no! Oh no! Okay. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So right. <laughs> so put so put this in your comments of whose accent is worse, <laughs> and if you say Abby, I will personally send you merch. <laughs> All right. We love you. Goodbye. Bye. 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 Bye.